In Florence, Italy, there is a famous art museum called the Bargello. It is a Middle Ages fortress that was converted into a museum and features tremendous artwork both in terms of painting and in terms of statuary. Years ago, there was a tourist who was touring this museum and being shown the paintings, and he remarked to his tour guide as they went from gallery to gallery, this doesn't really do much for me. Now, get the picture. This is exquisite artwork, very highly valued, and his comment to his guide was, this just really doesn't do much for me. To which his tour guide looked at him and said, Sir, the artwork is not on trial. You are. The artwork is not on trial. You are. So many times I think in our world today, Jesus is treated like he's on trial. You know, the the greatest terrible thing that can happen to you in our culture today is you can be bored. And what happens when God's not exciting? Jesus doesn't appear just to, to be thrilling. The Bible is boring. And you see, if we're not careful, we... We treat him like he is on trial, like his word is on trial. But in reality, he's not on trial. We are. Been talking since the first of the year about the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. And we see now the Spirit of God is our advocate. He's our helper, the one who's come alongside of us. We've seen how the Holy Spirit is our teacher. He teaches peace uh, and brings peace to our lives. We've seen how He's our comforter. He takes the sting out of the losses that we have in life and walks beside us. But the Holy Spirit of God is also a convictor. He has been sent specifically into our lives to convict us, the Scripture says, of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And this ministry of the Holy Spirit, this ministry of conviction, is not a ministry that we particularly want, that we particularly enjoy, that we would just as soon ignore, but it is nonetheless a God-given, God-directed ministry of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit of God comes to our lives, one of the ways that He's going to come to our lives is in conviction. If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 16. The Gospel of John, chapter 16. Now this, as we've seen in recent weeks, is a message that Jesus is bringing, a teaching that Jesus is giving to His disciples the night before He is to be crucified. He is preparing them for what is coming. And He is teaching them here about this ministry of the Holy Spirit. And He moves, as we're going to see today, to speaking of the Holy Spirit as the convictor, as one who comes into our lives to convict us, and he's going to show us what he convicts us specifically of. 
John's Gospel, chapter 16, and we're going to begin with verse 4. The Lord Jesus is the speaker here. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the Helper, that is the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of the world is judged. Now Jesus, in speaking to the disciples this night, is saying to them, and we've seen this in recent weeks, he repeatedly says to them, I'm going to leave you. I'm going away. And they don't understand at this point, of course, all the connotations of what he means by he's going away. But he says, I'm leaving you and I'm going away. Now, he has also said to them in the preceding verses, you guys are about to be persecuted. You live in a world that's very unjust, where evil is rewarded and doing good uh, is often, you know, thrown under the bus. So I want you to understand what's coming your way. And he says, it's going to get really tough. And then he says, and and I'm going to be leaving you, which makes things seem even worse. You're going to be left all alone, they think. But Jesus says, I want you to understand that in leaving you, I'm sending the helper, the Holy Spirit. He's going to come. He's going to walk beside you. He's going to help you get through all this. And it's going to even be a better situation for you because the Holy Spirit is being sent. You see, Jesus walked on this earth in a body, and because he was in a physical body, he was localized. He can only be in one place at one time. The Holy Spirit has a universal presence. He is not limited to being in one place at one time. He can be in all places all the time. The Spirit of God has the power, the ability to be able to get access to every person's heart. And so while Jesus could only walk with the disciples physically in one place, the Holy Spirit was going to be able to indwell all of them no matter where they were. And I've said this to you in recent weeks, and I know sometimes we struggle with this, but Jesus intentionally put us in a better place than the disciples were in. It's so easy to read the New Testament and think, man, if Jesus could just be here in a physical body, walking beside me and talking to me like he did with the disciples, I could really love the Lord and serve the Lord and follow the Lord if I could carry on these personal conversations with him. And Jesus keeps saying over and over and over again in John 14, John 15, and John 16, listen, it's going to be better when I leave because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and He's not going to walk beside you like I have. He's going to be inside of you and He's going to be with all of you and He'll be with you anywhere you go. So folks, when you and I get defeated and we feel like we don't have it as good as the disciples, Jesus actually said and taught us we've got it better than the disciples. He's not beside me. He is inside of me and He's with all of us He's not locked up here in the church. When we leave here today in about an hour, he's going to go with us 
everywhere we go, walking with us inside of us. Now, notice verse 7. He says, I tell you this truth. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. He says the Holy Spirit is going to convict this world, speaking of the hostile world here that they were encountering, He's going to convict you of sin. The word there, conviction, is the idea of bringing something to light, exposing it for what it is. It's sort of the idea of being in a courtroom and the prosecuting attorney lays everything out specifically, lays the indictment out against the accused with specificity. They don't just say you broke the law. What does an indictment do? It lays it out. This is specifically how you broke the law. And that's what he's saying here. The Spirit of God is going to bring it to light. He's going to lay it out specifically. Now, one of the reasons Jesus was hated by a lot of folks in his day is because Jesus got real personal and real specific about sin. He didn't just walk up to people and say, you sin. In the case of the Pharisees, he pointed out directly where their hypocrisy was. And that was the reason they couldn't stand him. Now, most of us, if we're honest, we don't mind repenting of sin. Jesus, forgive me of my sins, because that just keeps it really foggy. It's when I have to get specific about sin that I start getting nervous about. It's sort of like fog on the mountain. If you got fog covering a mountain, particularly if you got a heavy fog covering a mountain, you can't identify the mountain. If you've ever been up on Mill Mountain, if you go out there where you can look at all those mountains in the Roanoke Valley that are in the foreground, they will specifically name what mountains they are. But if you've got a heavy fog on those mountains, you know there's mountains out there, but you can't tell one mountain from the other. And that's sort of the way we like to deal with sin. Well, I know there's some mountains of sin in my life, and Lord, forgive me of them, but I don't name any of them. But what happens when the fog gets lifted from the mountain? Then you can identify the specific mountains that are out there. And that's the work and the role of the Holy Spirit. He blows away the fog and he identifies the specific mountains of sin that are in our lives. Now the word sin that's used here when he says he's going to convict us of sin is the word to mean missing the mark. I'm missing the mark of what God has set up for me. I'm missing his standard. He's forcing us to take responsibility and to accept accountability. Jesus is saying that when the Holy Spirit comes, one of the roles he has in our lives is to move up to our lives and to say, this is a mountain of sin in your life that you need to repent of, that you need to change. And he is going to name those sins specifically. He is going to point those sins out so that it's not just Jesus, forgive me of my sin. It is Jesus, forgive me of the pride that I have in this particular situation. Lord, I need to ask your forgiveness for the unforgiveness that I am bearing inside of me against this specific individual. 
Lord, I need to confess my weakness to you for succumbing to this particular temptation because I really enjoy that particular temptation. And on it can go. But folks, what we've got to do when we go before the Lord is not just say, Jesus, forgive me of my sin. Because we say, Lord, forgive me of my sin. I feel good. I go out and go right back and do the same thing all over again. Because it's all nice and foggy that way. When you and I repent of sin, it is that we go before the Lord and we say, Lord, I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit of God to show me right now the specific sins in my life that I need to repent. Point them out to me. Show them Teach me, and then, Lord, lead me in the direction of repentance. Now, the Spirit of God will never show us sin in our life just to make us miserable. He shows us sin to lead us to repentance because that's how we get free. When you and I are constantly saying to the Lord, Lord, forgive me my sin, but we never get specific, we tend to stay in bondage to the same stuff because we're not getting free from anything specific. But when we go to Him and we say, Lord, I want to ask that you would help me repent of specific sin, and God show it to me and teach that to me, it is then that the Lord is able to start setting us free in those areas of our lives. I have found in my own life that particularly when I'm taking the Lord's Supper, it is a good time for me to sit before the Lord and to say, God, would you begin to show me and point out to me and teach me the specific areas of my life? And what I find is God shows me that I've got sin that I didn't realize I had. That what I thought was the surface problem, the presenting problem, is not really the problem. It's something deeper underlying it that I'm feeding it, that I'm continuing to work with that's causing the sin problem and causing me to mess up. Notice he says here, I want you to realize the Spirit's presence. He's going to teach you. He's going to convict us of sin. And then notice verse 9. He says, it's because they don't believe in me. And the idea there is that they're not relying and leaning on the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the root of all sin is I'm not trusting Jesus. And any place in my life that I need to repent of sin, it's because I'm not trusting Jesus in that particular area of my life. This is because they don't believe in me. And the idea also there is that they consider themselves to be intellectually superior to me and where I'm coming from. So this sin that I have to convict, ask for forgiveness of and repent of is that, black, that place in my life that I am failing to trust the Lord. That I'm failing to say, Jesus, I'm giving that part of my life to you. Now notice where he takes us next in verse 10. He says, conviction of sin and then of what? Of righteousness. Now, righteousness is the standard of Jesus that we're supposed to conform to. And the idea here of his righteousness is that his goodness, who he is, creates in us craving for it. The conviction of sin causes us to get so sick of sin in our lives that we are craving for His goodness. It's the difference between trying to drink brackish water and drink fresh water. He tries to create within us a thirst for Him. When I was a boy and we used to go down on that farm in Gretna, I remember hot August days. And after my cousins and I had been playing on the farm for a while and sweating like crazy, 
we get thirsty. In my opinion, there's no water like fresh spring water. And we go to the back of that farm where there was the spring, and they had some ladles hanging up, and we dip into that water and start drinking that water. Cold on a hot day, fresh, etc. You see, the, the heat and the sweat cause us to crave. And what he's trying to do in our lives here is create a craving for him. Notice what he says in verse 10. He says, I'm going to convict you of righteousness. Why? Because I go to my Father and you will see me no longer. Now, what in the world does he mean there in verse 10? You're going to crave my righteousness and I'm going to convict you of, of my righteousness and who I am because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Well, the first thing I believe Jesus is pointing to there is his resurrection. I'm going to go to the Father. How am I going to go to the Father? Because I'm going to be raised from the dead. And his resurrection validates everything he said and did. But the second idea of Jesus going to the Father is that as Jesus ascended into the presence of the Father, the Father accepted everything Jesus had done on the cross. The Father God received everything that Jesus had done on the cross. We use the term the finished work of Christ. And it's the idea that when Jesus went to the cross, He took all of our sin, our shame, our guilt, our punishment, our judgment on Him. And that when He, after His resurrection, ascended into the presence of the Father, He says, here I go to my Father. He, what He did on the cross was fully accepted. Now what do we need the convicting ministry of the Spirit in that regard? We need the convicting ministry of the Spirit so that when I pray and when I go to the Lord and when I try to relate to God, I do so out of a conviction that I go in the name of Jesus, in the blood of Jesus, and that I go fully accepted because Jesus' work was fully accepted. I am fully received, not because I'm such a good person and all that I've done, but I'm received by God and heard by God because of who Jesus is and because of what Jesus has done. So he's looking at his disciples and he's saying, guys, don't try to live in your own righteousness. Live out of a conviction that the Holy Spirit's going to form in you if you'll let him that you can be accepted in the presence of God, received into the presence of God because of me and what I have done for you. So many people think they're not good enough to come to the Lord and won't come to the Lord and won't walk with God because they say I'm not good enough, I'm not righteous enough and all the rest. Folks, that's baloney. We don't come in who we are. We come in who Jesus is. We are accepted because of Jesus, not because of what we worked up. Don't let the devil hold you back and let it cause you to forfeit walking and receiving what Jesus has done and how he's opened it up for you to be accepted by him. You know, I've heard people over the years, and Dr. Billy Graham died a few weeks ago, great servant of the Lord, but I've heard people say, well, you know, I can't be a Billy Graham. Well, first of all, God didn't call you to be that. But secondly, the issue is not us trying to be somebody else. The issue is for us to walk into God's presence and what Jesus has done, accepted and received into His presence because of what Jesus has done, and then living out what He has called us to be. There was a hymn written back in 1832 with such relevant words to it. My hope is built on nothing less 
than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let me read the third verse. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. I love that. His covenant, his blood, his oath support me in the whelming flood. Not how much I can psychologically psych myself out about it. It's what he has done and who he is that supports me. When all around my soul gives way. You ever had a time in your life you felt like everything around you, getting every prop knocked out from underneath you, you felt like you're staying on sinking sand? When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. When he shall come with trumpet sound, O oh, may thy then in him be found, dressed in his, not mine, his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All of the ground is sinking sand. Let's move on. Convicts us of sin, of his righteousness, and then he says of judgment. But whose judgment? Look at verse 11. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, I have always read this passage and thought it was talking about judgment on us. But that's not what it's talking about. He's saying he's going to convict us that the ruler of this world, Satan, has been judged. Now, I want you to follow me on this. On the cross, when Jesus died, he did judge our sin. But he also judged Satan and condemned Satan. One of the purposes of the cross when Jesus took our sin was so that we would not have to be judged. We would not be condemned. Jesus said, I didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but he did come to condemn Satan. He did come to judge Satan. And Jesus is saying here in this verse that the Spirit is going to convict us, strike the conviction in our hearts that the ruler of this world is judged or condemned. The reason Good Friday is Good Friday is because Satan has already lost the battle. Now, he doesn't act like he's lost the battle, but he has lost the battle. Back in November, my son and a good friend of our family went to the National D-Day Memorial. And they were giving us a tour and recounting to us what led up to D-Day, how the Allies prepared for it, and then the various stages of the attack and everything that happened on D-Day. But one of the things that God shared with us is that Rommel who was one of Hitler's top generals. In fact, best they can tell, Hitler's favorite general, the general that Hitler had the most faith in, had made the statement that if the Allies were able to successfully invade Europe and get a foothold, that basically the Second World War was going to be over with. Rommel understood that if the Allies got a foothold in France in an invasion that it was just going to be a matter of time before the Allies won. And that's the reason he understood that it was so important to keep them 
from getting that foothold. And when the Germans realized what D-Day was all about, they fought it as hard as they could because they knew if the Allies got established in France and they began to move forward, then basically the war was just a matter of time before it would be over. Now, that didn't mean that there weren't battles to be fought, some very significant and tough battles, but Rommel understood that if the Allies got the foothold in France, that even though they would fight them tooth and nail, they weren't going to win. And you see, Satan understood that if Jesus went to the cross and died, he had lost. That's the reason the attempt was made to throw Jesus off the bluff in his own hometown. Because Satan didn't want him getting to the cross. Now, we got a lot of battles that we fight between now and when Jesus comes again. But don't ever forget this. The devil knows he's already lost the war. He's the father of lies, and he's trying to do everything he can to convince the church that we are headed for defeat because he knows he has already been defeated. He's doing everything he can to convince you that you cannot win against him and that sin is too strong and the guilt is too great because he knows he has already been defeated. Our task is to listen to the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit convicts us and convinces us inside of us that the victory has already been won and our job is to walk in the victory He has for us. That Jesus walked away from the cross victorious. Satan did not. Revelation chapter 20 beginning with verse 7. Revelation chapter 20, beginning with verse 7. And I don't have time to go into the interpretation of the book of Revelation, but let me just whet your, your appetite here a little bit, okay? Revelation chapter 20 and verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle, their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, which would be Jerusalem. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, folks, book of Revelation was read, written about 2,000 years ago. And for 2,000-plus years, the devil has been reading verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, the Bible tells us that the demons in hell hear the word of God and tremble. We may not tremble, but they got enough sense to tremble. So you see, Satan for 2,000 years has been reading and he knows what his end is. His end is not being victorious. His end is a lake of fire where he's going to burn and be tormented every day for eternity. He knows 
That is his end. So what does he do? He runs around trying to convince us and convince the church that our end is defeat because he knows God already punched his ticket to hell. What we got to do is just simply live in the truth of what the Lord has already taught. We've got to allow the Holy Spirit of God, as Jesus says here, to convict us of what? Not just of sin to get right with God, but I tell you, a lot of times when I talk with Christians and look at the church today, we need to be convicted of victory. We need to be convicted that this thing is going to turn out okay. In fact, it's going to turn out victorious. We need to be convicted that Jesus won at the cross and in the resurrection. We need to be convicted that we can live in an expectation of what God's doing today, what he wants to do tomorrow, and what he's got in store down the road. We need to live in the conviction of the book of Revelation. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. This morning, as we go before God in prayer, I want you to ask the Spirit of God to show us in our own lives any specific sin that we need to repent of. And then ask Him to cleanse us and forgive us. Let's have a time right now with with God, not of saying, God, would you forgive me of my sins, but Lord, would you show me, would you point out to me specific areas of my life or an area of my life, a place in my life where there's this mountain of sin, Lord, that I need to ask your forgiveness of, I need to repent and come to you. And now allow me to encourage you to ask the Lord by the presence of the Holy Spirit to encourage your heart and to convince you of the victory that He has achieved and that you can walk in. Lord, we want to listen to the Holy Spirit this day. And in so doing, We want to hear him show us and teach us and convince us and encourage us in the victory that, Lord Jesus, you achieved on the cross 2,000 years ago. God, help us not to accept and to live the lie of defeat, of depression, but to live the truth of the victory that you have already achieved. And thank you, Jesus, that that we don't pray to you today because of how good we are and how long we've been in church or not been in church or how good our track record is. We come to you in the name of Jesus, in the blood of Jesus, through the person of the Lord Jesus. And we are accepted because He has been accepted. And what He did on the cross has been accepted. And we come through Him. And Lord, we want to offer You praise. And we want to say, bless Your name.
God, we ask that you would create within us a craving for you. A craving, Lord, for who you are and what you are. And God, a spontaneous, uncontrollable, overpowering desire to worship you and bless you and praise you, Lord. God, may our tongues fall under the power of the Holy Spirit to the place, Lord, of confessing your victory and worshiping you because of it. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you are here today and you need to give your life to Jesus, in just a moment as we sing, I'm going to invite you to walk this aisle and and say, today I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to serve Him. I want to follow Him. I want to walk with Him. Scripture says in the book of Matthew 28 that one of the first steps of following Him is baptism. And if you need to be baptized, then we want to invite you to come. If God's speaking to you about becoming part of our church family here, we invite you to come. Some of you, the Lord may have been working in your life through different experiences and saying, I'm calling you and directing your life into ministry and you need to surrender to that calling. Whatever you need to do to take that step of obedience, let me encourage you to do it. Lord, have your way with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.